Welcome to the Drabblecast, episode 188. The Drabblecast is a weekly short fiction audio magazine that brings strange stories by strange authors to strange listeners, such as yourself. I'm your host, Norm Sherman. Folks, we've got a special sponsor for this week's show and the next couple ahead. Something I think you all will surely enjoy and want to add to your Kwanzaa lists this holiday season. At long last, wrenched from the innermost core of his creative innards, the one and only Frank Key has released another fat compendium of stories from his radio show, Hooting Yard on the Air, called Impugned by a Peasant and Other Stories. Some of you follow Frank Key and appreciate his brilliance. The rest of you are clearly in dire need of a dependency-forming first taste. So before we get to this week's feature story, Robert Sheckley's The Store of the Worlds, we're going to give you a little hit of the good stuff, man. A quick toke from Frank Key's new anthology, Impugned by a Peasant, better known to dealers on the streets as Blodgett Butter, Dirty Dobson, and the trip to Pointy Town. You'll be back for more, trust me. We're going to start things off with Frank reading one of his own stories, The Temple of Hoon Fat Gar, along with snippets from a review of Frank's book by Guardian UK book reviewer Sam Jordison. Hope you enjoy. Because it was constructed mostly from canvas and cloth, and the canvas and cloth were fed on by moths, the Temple of Hoon Fat Gar is sometimes known as the moth-eaten temple of Hoon Fat Gar. Ravaged by moths and time and lashed by wild winds that blow across the Tarputa, it is a wonder the temple still stands a thousand years after the first devotees entered it through the sacred flap. It has, of course, been much patched and stitched over the centuries, and its fabric is regularly stiffened with starch carried in canisters for miles upon miles by worshippers of the hideous bat god Fatso, for it is he to whom the temple is dedicated. The wild winds that lash and batter the temple are meteorologically very interesting indeed. Students of the weather have been perplexed by them ever since modern wild wind studies began. Before our scientific age, of course, the sheer weirdness of the winds that blow across the Tarputa was ascribed to the mercurial and petulant nature of the hideous bat god Fatso, for it was thought that he was responsible for them, as he was for everything in the universe. We're wiser now but no closer to getting to grips with the wild, lashing winds. Those who still believe in Fatso have a simple explanation. For them, the winds are the physical manifestation of the temperament of Fatso's magic pig. Actually, he has two magic pigs, but we can safely ignore one of them for a moment or two. The idea is that this particular pig which it must be understood is not a real pig in any sense, somehow sends the winds howling across the Tarputa whenever it is fractious or hungry or obstreperous or maddened or otherwise out of sorts. Why the hideous bat god Fatso does nothing to placate his magic pig is an ineffable mystery. Until fairly recently, I had assumed that nonsense was pretty much history. 
that it reached a high water mark with Edward Lear and Lewis Carroll in the 19th century, had a short, delightful renaissance in the 1960s with Dr. Seuss and Edward Gorey, and then disappeared. There might be a lot of bullshit in the modern world, but there's very little high-grade nonsense. Or so I thought, until someone introduced me to Frank Key. Frank can probably lay claim to having written more nonsense than any other man living. He's been at it for decades, quietly putting out books with titles such as Twitching and Shattered, Volleyball, Tar and Shuddering, and He Keeps His Gutter Percher in a Gunny Sack. The religion dedicated to him is short on theologians of any stripe, although one of the few to have addressed the problem contended that Fatso spent much of his time pacifying the other magic pig, which, if ever it fully awakened, would make the wild winds that batter the temple seem like tiny pipsqueak gusts of summer breeze. Other so-called scholars argued that this implied the other magic pig was somehow more powerful than Fatso himself, a clear heresy, so the first theologian was put in a crusher and crushed. There used to be at least five crushers on the mud plain around the temple of Hoon Fat Gar, so we must assume that there were plenty of heretics to be crushed. Occasionally, a bright young whippersnapper archaeologist will announce plans for a dig at the site, hoping to exhume a fantastical hoard of crushed bones, but not one of these schemes ever succeeds. It's said that Fatso himself sabotages the expeditions by causing shipwrecks and helicopter crashes and by pickling the archaeologists' brains while they sleep. In these ploys, he calls on the assistance of his flock of bitterns. Unlike the two pigs, the bitterns are not magical, but nor, of course, are they real. They're phantom spectral bitterns, beholden to Fatso for some service he did them in the distant past. We cannot guess what that might have been, for it's a topic suspiciously neglected by all the priests and wizards and jumping about men who interpret Fatso to his followers or, I should say, who used to do so. There are none of them left alive today, at least none that we know of. Believers in Fatso are a dwindling band, often greasy and myopic and spindly and gormless. They tend to lack airlin. Most of them probably would be crushed in the crushers if the crushers were still there, because one thing we can be quite clear about the hideous bat god Fatso is that he expected his devotees to cut a dash. There may have been few opportunities for glittering social panache on the prehistoric Tarputa, especially with those wild winds, but what rare chances there were were seized on by Fatso's followers. Great attention was paid to the angles of hats, the tying of cravats and affectations of toffee-nosed insouciance. This is not to discount a concomitant yearning for the mud encouraged by one of the magic pigs. So today there are few who haul their canisters of starch for miles and miles to stiffen the moth-eaten canvas and cloth of the temple of Hoon Fat Gar. Perhaps in a hundred years there will be none at all. Yet Fatso himself will still, as far as he is concerned, hold sway over the universe, and his magic pig will still make the wild winds blow, and his other, even more frightening magic pig will doze and slumber, dreaming of havoc. 
That it's an odd book hardly needs saying. Key leads us through shaggy dog story after shaggy dog story, tantalising us with the illusion of coherence, but in the end making sure it all adds up to nothing. Or at least it seems to add up to nothing. At the back of it all, there's the disturbing thought that Key may make perfect sense, and that it's our own world which looks crazy in comparison. It's that contradiction that, for me, forms the essence of nonsense, and leads me to think that Frank Key might be its finest living practitioner. It's easy for us to dismiss their very existence. Until that is, we have struggled stylishly across the inhospitable Tarputa and stooped down to crawl through the sacred flap to enter the temple. Then we see what all those believers through the sanctuary saw, a sight so magnificent and terrifying that we sprawl helplessly in the mud, shrieking, brains bedizened, gaga for the god of all gods. And that's just one of 114 short stories in this anthology, folks. It's good stuff. If you're not sold yet, it means our subliminal message frequencies are probably getting blocked out by your crappy speakers. Try listening with headphones when you get home. If you are sold, go to hootingyard.com to pick yourself up a copy. This has been a Drabble-approved public service announcement. Okay, on to this week's feature story, The Store of the Worlds by Robert Sheckley. Sheckley was a Hugo and Nebula-nominated American author who Neil Gaiman described as probably the best short story writer of the 50s and mid-60s, working in any field. Sheckley's numerous quick-witted stories and novels were famously unpredictable, absurdist, and broadly comical, what J.G. Ballard called a draft of Voltaire and Tonic. Robert Sheckley was given the author emeritus honor by the Science Fiction and Fantasy Writers of America in 2001 and died in 2005. This story originally appeared in Playboy, 1959, and audio rights were obtained through the author's estate. So, without further ado, we bring you The Store of the Worlds by Robert Sheckley. Mr. Wayne came to the end of the long, shoulder-high mound of gray rubble, and there was the store of the worlds. It was exactly as his friends had described, a small shack constructed of bits of lumber, parts of cars, a piece of galvanized iron, and a few rows of crumbling bricks, all daubed over with a watery blue paint. Mr. Wayne glanced back down the long lane of rubble to make sure he hadn't been followed. He tucked his parcel more firmly under his arm. Then, with a little shiver at his own audacity, he opened the door and slid inside. Good morning, the proprietor said. He, too, was exactly as described. A tall, crafty-looking old fellow with narrow eyes and a downcast mouth. His name was Tompkins. He sat in an old rocking chair, and perched on the back of it was a blue and green parrot. There was one other chair in the store, and a table. On the table was a rusted hypodermic. I've heard about your store from friends, Mr. Wayne said. Then you know my price, Tompkins said. Have you brought it? Yes, 
said Mr. Wayne, holding up his parcel. But I wanted to ask first. <laughs> they always want to ask, Tompkins said to the parrot, who blinked. Go ahead, ask. I want to know what really happens. Tompkins sighed. What happens is this. You pay me my fee, I give you an injection which knocks you out. Then, with the aid of certain gadgets which I have in the back of the store, I liberate your mind. Tompkins smiled as he said that, and his silent parrot seemed to smile too. What happens then? Mr. Wayne asked. Well, your mind, liberated from its body, is able to choose from the countless probability worlds which the Earth casts off every second of its existence. Grinning now, Tompkins sat up in his rocking chair and began to show signs of enthusiasm. <laughs> oh yes, my friend. From the moment this battered Earth was born out of the sun's fiery womb, it cast off its alternate probability worlds. Worlds without end, emanating from events large and small. Every Alexander and every amoeba creating worlds, just as ripples will spread in a pond, no matter how big or how small the stone you throw. Doesn't every object cast a shadow? Well, my friend, the Earth itself is four-dimensional, therefore it casts three-dimensional shadows, solid reflections of itself through every moment of its being. Millions, billions of Earths, an infinity of Earths, and your mind, liberated by me, will be able to select any of these worlds and live upon it for a while. Mr. Wayne was uncomfortably aware that Tompkins sounded like a circus barker, proclaiming marvels that simply couldn't exist. But, Mr. Wayne reminded himself, things had happened within his own lifetime which he would never have believed possible. Never! So, perhaps, the wonders that Tompkins spoke of were possible, too. Mr. Wayne said, My friends also told me that I was an out-and-out -out fraud, Tompkins asked. As some of them implied that, Mr. Wayne said cautiously. But I try to keep an open mind. They also said that I know what your dirty-minded friends said. They told you about the fulfillment of desire. Is that what you want to hear about? Yes, said Mr. Wayne. They told me that whatever I wished for, whatever I wanted. Exactly, said Tompkins. The thing could work in no other way. There are the infinite worlds to choose among. Your mind chooses and is guided only by desire. Your deepest desire is the only thing that counts. If you have been harboring a secret dream of murder. Oh, hardly, cried Mr. Wayne. Then you will go to a world where you can murder, where you can roll in blood, where you can outdo Sod or Caesar or whoever your idol may be. Suppose it's power you want. Then you'll choose a world where you are a god, literally and actually. A bloodthirsty juggernaut, perhaps. Or an all-wise Buddha. Oh, I, I doubt very much if I- Oh, there are other desires, too, Thompson said. All heavens and all hells. Unbridled sexuality, gluttony, drunkenness, love, fame, anything you want. Amazing, said Mr. Wayne. Yes, Tompkins agreed. 
Of course my little list doesn't exhaust all the possibilities, all the combinations and permutations of desire. For all I know, you might want a simple, placid, pastoral existence on a South Seas island among idealized natives. <laughs> that sounds more like me, Mr. Wayne said with a shy laugh. Oh, but who knows, Tompkins asked. Even you might not know what your true desires are. They might involve your own death. Does that happen often? Mr. Wayne asked anxiously. Occasionally. I wouldn't want to die, Mr. Wayne said. It hardly ever happens, Tompkins said, looking at the parcel in Mr. Wayne's hands. If you say so. But how do I know all this is real? Your fee is extremely high. It'll take everything I own. And for all I know, you'll give me a drug and it'll be just a dream. Everything I own just for a, a shot of heroin and a lot of fancy words. Tompkins smiled reassuringly. The experience has no drug-like quality about it and no sensation of a dream either. If it's true, Mr. Wayne said a little petulantly, why can't I stay in the world of my desire for good? I'm working on that, Tompkins said. That's why I charge so high a fee, to get materials, to experiment. I'm trying to find a way of making the transition permanent. So far, I haven't been able to loosen the cord that binds a man to his own earth and pulls him back to it. Not even the great mystics could cut that cord, except with death, but I still have my hopes. It would be a great thing if you succeeded, Mr. Wayne said politely. Yes, it would, Tompkins cried with a surprising burst of passion. For then I'd turn my wretched shop into an escape hatch. My process would be free, free for everyone. Everyone would go to the earth of their desires, the earth that really suited them, and leave this damned place to the rats and worms. Tompkins cut himself off in mid-sentence and became icy calm. But I fear my prejudices are showing. I can't offer a permanent escape from this earth yet. Not one that doesn't involve death. Perhaps I never will be able to. For now, all I can offer you is a vacation, a change, a taste of another world, and a look at your own desires. You know my fee. I'll refund it if the experience isn't satisfactory. That's good of you, Mr. Wayne said, quite earnestly. But there's that other matter my friends told me about. The ten years off my life. That can't be helped, Tompkins said, and can't be refunded. My process is a tremendous strain on the nervous system. Life expectancy is shortened accordingly. That's one of the reasons why our so-called government has declared my process illegal. Yes, but they don't enforce the ban very firmly, Mr. Wayne said. No. Officially, the process is banned as a harmful fraud, but officials are men, too. They'd like to leave this earth just like everyone else. Oh, the cost, Mr. Wayne mused, gripping his parcel tightly, and ten years off my life for the fulfillment of my secret desires. Really, I, I must give this some thought. Think away, Tompkins said indifferently. All the way home, 
Mr. Wang thought about it. When his train reached Port Washington, Long Island, he was still thinking, and driving his car from the station to his home, he was still thinking about Tompkins' crafty old face and worlds of probability and the fulfillment of desire. But when he stepped inside his house, those thoughts had to stop. Janet, his wife, wanted him to speak sharply to the maid who'd been drinking again. His son Tommy wanted help with the sloop, which was to be launched tomorrow, and his baby daughter wanted to tell about her day in kindergarten. Mr. Wayne spoke pleasantly but firmly to the maid. He helped Tommy put the final coat of copper paint on the sloop's bottom, and he listened to Peggy tell about her adventures in the playground. Later, when the children were in bed and he and Janet were alone in their living room, she asked him if something were wrong. Wrong? You seem to be worried about something, Janet said. Did you have a bad day at the office? Oh, just the usual sort of thing. He certainly wasn't going to tell Janet or anyone else that he'd taken the day off and gone to see Tompkins in his crazy old store of the worlds. Nor was he going to speak about the right every man should have, once in his lifetime, to fulfill his most secret desires. Janet, with her good common sense, would never understand that. The next days at the office were extremely hectic. All of Wall Street was in a mild panic over events in the Middle East and in Asia, and stocks were reacting accordingly. Mr. Wayne settled down to work. He tried not to think of the fulfillment of desire at the cost of everything he possessed, with ten years of his life thrown in for good measure. It was crazy. Old Tompkins must be insane. On weekends, he went sailing with Tommy. The old sloop was behaving very well, making practically no water through her bottom seams. Tommy wanted a new suit of racing sails, but Mr. Wayne sternly rejected that. Perhaps next year, if the market looked better. For now, the old sails would have to do. Sometimes, at night, after the children were asleep, he and Janet would go sailing. Long Island Sound was quiet then, and cool. Their boat glided past the blinking buoys, sailing toward the swollen yellow moon. I know something's on your mind, Janet said. Darling, please. Is there something you're keeping from me? No, nothing. Are you sure? Are you absolutely sure? Absolutely sure. Then, will you put your arms around me? And the sloop sailed itself for a while. desire and fulfillment. But autumn came, and the sloop had to be hauled. The stock market regained some stability, but Peggy caught the measles. Tommy wanted to know the difference between ordinary bombs, atom bombs, hydrogen bombs, cobalt bombs, and all the other kinds of bombs that were in the news. Mr. Wayne explained to the best of his ability, and the maid quit unexpectedly. Secret desires were all very well. Perhaps he did want to kill someone or live on a South Seas island, but there were responsibilities to consider. He had two growing children and a better wife than he deserved. Perhaps around Christmas time. 
But in midwinter, there was a fire in the unoccupied guest bedroom due to defective wiring. The firemen put out the blaze without much damage, and no one was hurt, but it put any thought of Tompkins out of his mind for a while. First, the bedroom had to be repaired, for Mr. Wayne was very proud of his gracious old house. Business was still frantic and uncertain due to the international situation. Those Russians, those Arabs, those Greeks and Chinese, the intercontinental missiles, the atom bombs, the Sputniks. Mr. Wayne spent long days at the office and sometimes evenings too. Tommy caught the mumps. A part of the roof had to be reshingled, and then already it was time to consider the spring launching of the sloop. A year had passed, and he'd had little time to think of secret desires. But perhaps next year. In the meantime. Well, said Tompkins, are you all right? Yes, quite all right. Mr. Wayne said. He got up from the chair and rubbed his forehead. Do you want a refund? Tompkins asked. No, the experience was quite satisfactory. <sighs> they always are, Tompkins said, winking lewdly at the parrot. Well, what was yours? A world of the recent past, Mr. Wayne said. Oh, a lot of them are. Did you find out about your secret desire? Was it murder or a South Seas island? I'd rather not discuss it, Mr. Wayne said pleasantly but firmly. Uh, a lot of people won't discuss it with me, Tompkins said sulkily. I'll be damned if I know why. Because, well, I think the world of one's secret desire feels sacred somehow. No offense. Do you think you'll ever be able to make it permanent? The world of one's choice, I mean. The old man shrugged his shoulders. I'm trying. If I succeed, you'll hear about it. Everyone will. Yes, I suppose so. Mr. Wayne undid his parcel and laid its contents on the table. The parcel contained a pair of army boots, a knife, two coils of copper wire, and three small cans of corned beef. Tompkins' eyes glittered for a moment. Quite satisfactory, he said. Thank you. Goodbye, said Mr. Wayne, and thank you. Mr. Wayne left the ship and hurried down to the end of the lane of gray rubble. Beyond it, as far as he could see, lay flat fields of rubble, brown and gray and black. Those fields, stretching to every horizon, were made of the twisted corpses of cities, the shattered remnants of trees, and the fine white ash that once was human flesh and bone. Well, Mr. Wayne said to himself, at least we gave it as good as we got. That year in the past had cost him everything he owned and ten years of life thrown in for good measure. Had it been a dream? It was still worth it. But now he had to put away all thought of Janet and the children. That was finished unless Tompkins perfected his process. Now he had to think about his own survival. With the aid of his wrist Geiger, he found a deactivated lane through the rubble. He'd better get back to the shelter before dark, before the rats came out.
If he didn't hurry, he'd miss the evening potato ration. our story. Hope you enjoyed it. Writer and philosopher Albert Hubbard said, I would rather be able to appreciate things I cannot have than to have things I'm not able to appreciate. Stick around at the end of this week's show, folks. Gonna play a related song from a band I met a couple months ago performing at Con on the Cob in Ohio called 19 Action News. They let me borrow some of their PA during the show, and we traded CDs afterwards and had some various odd adventures that night. They're an indie sci-fi rock band, and I really got to appreciate their CD on the ride home. The whole thing's about an apocalypse, end-of-the-world scenario, and each song track has a various perspective, attitude, or character vignette that contributes to an overall plot narrative. They just came out with their new CD, too. You can check them out at 19actionnews.net. That's 19actionnews.net. You'll find a link to them in our show notes. And while we're all going to websites here, consider stopping by ours, drabblecast.org, where you'll see a couple throbbing, guilt-inducing donation support options. There are a lot of costs that go into being a paying fiction market, folks, and we may have a sponsorship going at the moment, but that doesn't mean there'll always be water in the well. Even just a couple bucks helps out a lot. What helps out a whole lot more are those people who sign up for automatic monthly subscriptions, either five bucks a month or ten bucks a month, because then we can kind of plan ahead. Go for it. Be our sugar daddy, you big, sexy, anthropomorphic piece of candy. We do appreciate the help. So we've got a Twitter account. It's at the Drabblecast, and each week we pick a 100-character story posted in the Drabblecast discussion forums, and we tweet it out as our weekly winner, in addition to running it on the show. Here's this week's from first-time winner Ben Hathaway. I had heard that love is blind. Just before my son's viola recital, I prayed that it was also deaf. As an exception to the rule, we picked that story even though it counted spaces as characters. Usually we don't count those, but it was just too fun to pass on. And Ben will know for next time. Ben apparently lives in Tanzania with his wife and their five adopted Tanzanian kids, one of whom, he says, is profoundly deaf and was the inspiration for that twabble. They run a children's center for orphaned and abandoned babies with 55 bundles of Tanzanian joy, some as small as one kilogram. So they're apparently very easy to store. Check them out at foreverangels.org. Ben says that living in Tanzania isn't easy, that local Tanzanian true-life soap operas regularly include witches and zombies. No kidding, he says. There's a village near his home that's so overrun by witches that the police won't go near it for fear of becoming slave to their evil powers. Typical 5-0. They're supposed to protect and serve, right? What do they think that means? Waiting tables at Shoney's? No, it means you might end up a mindless minion of some arcane demonic evil, okay? If you don't like it, take it up with the union. Be careful out there, Ben. At least you've got plenty of tiny angels stashed around the house. All right, folks, that's our show. Gonna try and get next week's out a little early for you so you can have a little something to get through that Thanksgiving holiday traffic. Drive safe, everybody. 
Remember, the Drabblecast is produced with the Creative Commons Attribution Non-Commercial No Derivatives License, which means don't change any of it, don't sell any of it, but feel free to share it all you like. Tell a friend or a family member about us. Spread the weird. Special thanks to this week's awesome episode artist, Lizanne Hurd. You can see more of her art and read some of her very entertaining stories at www.freewebs.com forward slash F5IVER. We'll see you next week, weirdos. Until then, our staff is made up of associate editor Matthew Bay, a flock of phantom spectral bitterns, and yours truly, Norm Sherman, reminding you that every object casts a shadow. Like you